Uh, we're going to turn to his word right now, and we're going to pick up and, and Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 6. We'll begin at uh, verse 45, and I'll read all the way through verse 56. If you have your uh, pew Bibles in front of you, that you can find this passage on page 842. This is the word of the Lord. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, which is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and, he, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. But when they had crossed over, they came to the land, at, came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, what a treat it is to have your word written and inspired by your spirit, breathed out by the very uh, God of Scripture. Father, we approach your word with humility, with reverence, with awe, and we approach it, uh, Lord, with faith. And pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. Father, I ask that you would bless your servant as we unpack your word for your people, for your glory. Be pleased to have your way with me and with us during this moment, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, nine times out of ten, if you have children or grandchildren, then you have heard of uh, what we now call slime. We have made our fair share of slime in our homes, and uh, if it was, were up to me, it would be forever banned. Uh, <laughs> slime ends up on couches, on the floor. We even have some on, a mark on our ceiling where uh, someone threw some slime up, and that mark is not going away. Uh, but on a serious note, uh, slime has for a first cousin, you might say, uh, Play-Doh. And if you were like me growing up, one of my favorite things to play with was Play-Doh. I mean, I actually love getting it out of the can and how it has that perfect crease and the perfect shape. I actually love the way Play-Doh smells even. And I used to love Play-Doh because your imagination could go to work. I mean, you could make faces and animals and shapes and spaghetti and meatballs, I mean, you name it, you could make it with Play-Doh. And here's the, the, the beauty about Play-Doh. As long as it was soft and malleable, you could make a lot of things with it. But if you play with it for a long amount of time, then you know, once you leave it out of the jar uh, and it's exposed to the elements, 
then it starts to harden. And once it hardens, you can't fashion it and shape it. You can't use it as you intended. And I want to make the case to you this morning is uh, the human heart is a lot like that. And I don't mean the organ uh, in your chest cavity. Now, it too can harden, and they call that uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I don't know what it is. I just Googled that, right? But uh, apparently the, the, the heart muscle can harden and it can put a lot of stress on your heart and it makes it more difficult to pump blood and you have to get on medicine and et cetera. But I'm not talking about the organ. I'm talking about the core of who you and I are that, believe it or not, left exposed to the world and to our own sin that we can become hardened towards the Lord and the things of the Lord, that we can become numb to truth and numb to beauty and numb to holiness and numb to zeal. And I see several of you nodding your heads because you know this is true. That if, if this is you this morning, um, I think our passage brings sobering and yet good news. But uh, I think if we're honest and you look at the text, all of us should be nodding our heads at yes. And, 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 and if you look at the text, you understand that hardness of heart, and this is our first point, it's really a sickness that we all will encounter. A sickness that we all will encounter. Now, why am I saying we'll all encounter it? And why is that such a big deal? Because when I think of hardness of heart, you want to tell, let me tell you who I think of? I think of Pharaoh. And I think of the passage that Zach just read. And if you don't know your Bibles, it's cool. I'm going to give you a summary that there was once a king upon the earth, and his name was Pharaoh. Or that was his title. And in, in that day, uh, if you were the king of Egypt, you were the king of the known world. And he was viewed as, as God Almighty. And unfortunately, they had enslaved God's people, Israel. And God waited 400 years and allowed them to be there for a season. But then the Bible says he, oh, he heard their cries and he raised up a deliverer whose name was Moses. And he used Moses, who was actually raised in Pharaoh's home, to go back and to deliver evil, deliver Egypt from him. And the Lord doesn't just say he's the Lord of the earth. He actually proves it. And so for Pharaoh, Pharaoh wants to see a demonstration. Why should I let them go? And the Lord says, because I said so. Well, who are you? I am uh, the Lord of heaven and earth. And the, the Lord shows him that. And so one miracle after another, after another, plague after plague, miracle after miracle, you see this, 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 this play happening, right? Where Pharaoh agrees to let Israel go. But then the text says, and his heart was hardened. And so he says, no, he changes his mind. And every time the Lord does something, Pharaoh is about to let him go, and then his heart is hardened, and then he changes his mind. And then you sort of reach the pinnacle. This is the last miracle where the Lord says, okay, he doesn't see now. I'm going to take the firstborn of all things in, 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 in Egypt. And Pharaoh doesn't believe, and he doesn't put the Passover lamb over his door. And so Pharaoh loses his own firstborn, and not just Pharaoh, all of Egypt. And then he finally agrees to let Israel go. But then he hardened his heart again, and he actually chases them, chases after them, after he has lost his own son, 
And of course, the Lord spreads the sea and God's people walk through it. And of course, all the chariots of Israel, they die. And that's an image of hardness of heart. When I think of that, I think of him, that mean, bad, blind guy whose heart was so hardened that he lost himself in the pursuit of God's people. But we're at a crucial section in Mark's gospel where Mark is actually making the case that if you think only Pharaoh's heart can be hardened, you're mistaken, and I'm mistaken. Now, why do I say that? Because we're going to see it next week when Jesus encounters the Pharisees. Look at chapter 7 of Mark and look down right there at uh, at verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it, it is written, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so we're getting into the heart in Mark's gospel where he's actually showing it's not just Pharaoh whose heart can be hardened. The religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, their hearts are so hardened that when the Messiah comes, they don't see him. And just in case you think it's just Pharaoh, that bad man, or those Pharisees, those self-righteous people, go to Mark chapter 8, and this is where it should blow your mind. Jesus is about to feed 4,000 people. And look at what it says in verse 4. And his disciples answered him, how can one person feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? Now, if you were here with me two weeks ago, this is not the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus feeds people in a desolate place. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the section right before the section that we're in, you might think you're reading a misprint. You're not reading a misprint. Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 with a few fish, and I made the case to you that they were barley cakes and sardines. And he feeds 5,000 men plus the women and the children. And you turn to Mark chapter 8, guess what? He got more food and he got more stuff to feed with. And it's a less amount of people. Now we're not talking about 5,000, but 4,000. And the disciples actually ask, how will we feed these people? You see what's happening? They see, but they don't see. And you get what's explicit in our passage. And that's right there in verse 52. Did you see that? For they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. So if you don't believe me that it's implicit, Mark says, okay, it's explicit right there. Pharaoh's heart is not the only one that can be hardened. It can happen to the best of us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about hardness of heart, it's difficult to, 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 to label that. What is that, right? It's not like the organ that beats in your chest, that we could do a sonogram on your heart and we could see it, that we could put you on a machine and hear it, that we could do surgery and cut open your chest cavity and, and touch it, right? That, that, that you can put your eyes and ears and, and, and fingers on it if you need it to. Well, what about the, the, the spiritual heart of a person? How do we see that? What is it? And I'll be honest, it's mysterious. So mysterious that it drove me to go read John Owen this week. And it is still hard with a seminary degree, okay? 
But this is what John Owen says about the heart. He says, originally, humanity was created without sin, and therefore our minds rightly reflected on the creator and creation. And our affections, they properly loved God, and our wills followed after the good we knew and felt. And so Owen is talking about the mind. He's talking about what we know and what we can perceive from, from, from God's revelation of himself, that we're taking those things in through the mind, but then it, it should do something, right? It should move into our affections, how we feel about what we're receiving from God, and then that should move over into the will so that we can behave correctly in light of what we feel, in light of what God has revealed about himself, and that where you have those three things intersecting, it's a picture of the heart, right? So it's the mind, the will, the affections. But then he goes on to say, Where these things overlap, you have a picture of the heart. But as a result of the fall, sin draws our mind away from God. It entices and twists our desires and it paralyzes the will so that we now not don't have the ability to carry out the good that we should desire or the evil we do not. And so what, what, what Owen is saying is because of the fall, something tragic has happened. That God can reveal himself to us, and even though we see it, and even though we might feel a certain way, we lack the power and the ability to live consistent with that. Or we can see the truth and stiff arm the truth, right? He's making the case that because of the fall, it is not just that we do bad things, but at our very core, something is wrong. And that's what you see happening in the passage. They're not seeing Jesus correctly. And they're not feeling Jesus correctly. And they're not behaving inconsistent with what they have seen and heard about Jesus. Have you been there before? Where you know more truth than you can obey? You've been there before? Where you know truth and you reject it because you want something different? Have you been there before when the mind and the heart, when the mind and, and your feelings toward a thing, they're in step, but you lack power or you want to do something right, but your mind isn't informed because it's not regulated by Scripture. And so what you're doing is actually wrong, even though you think you're doing what's right. That's a picture, right, of the heart that is that is hardened toward the Lord. And, and that's what sin does, right? It, it hardens and it blinds and it starts to get in there and work in and on us. That left unchecked and unexposed to the Lord, this is when our hearts are hardened, family. Now, this is the sickness that we all encounter. And the question that I want to put before us is, well, is there a symptom of, the sense of this sickness, Pastor L.? Because you just told me, right, that, that the, the, the soul, the core of the soul is not like the organ of your heart that you can see and put your hands on it. And I want to make a case to you that God in his goodness 
while we can't see the mysterious nature of what it means to have a soul and a heart, I think what Mark is doing is he's actually saying we may not be able to put our finger on that, but we can put our finger on our behavior and our behavior can show us that. All right. So here's what I believe. I believe that we're in a beautiful section of Mark's gospel where he's going to show us hardness of heart, and we can trace hardness of heart based on behaviors that's coming out. And so for the Pharisees who construct this religious system where it's, it's, it's unclean, I'm unclean based on what I touch, and so I have to go in and physically wash my hands, and, and washing my hands, I'm now clean. Jesus says, no, that's hardness of heart because you think the cleansing you need is only external. So you can see hardness of heart through constructing these man-made principles that make you feel good about yourself and make you diminish the good news of Jesus. You can see hardness of heart when the disciples don't remember. When they ask that question, how can we feed these many people with this? Their hearts are hard and they're not remembering, they're not seeing. And the case that I want to make to you in this passage is you see hardness of heart through their response in the boat on the sea. Here's what's unique. Mark, all right. So here's the story. Jesus just healed, and he just feeds the 5,000. And then he sends the crowd away. He sends the disciples to the other side. He goes to a mountain to pray. And in the middle of the night, he starts to walk on water. And did you notice what the disciples said? Look at what happened in verse 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, here's what's unique about Mark's gospel. Mark uses the word fear a lot of times. And the word he uses for fear is the word phobia. And it's where we get claustrophobia and arachnophobia. It's a fear, right? It's, it's a fear. And to be honest, like, I'm scared of spiders, right? I, I don't like them. If I see them, I'm going to step on them, right? I just, but that, that's a common fear. Now, here's the thing. Here's what's different about the section that we're in. Did you catch the word he uses uh, for, uh, for fear in verse 50? They saw him and they were terrified. Mark uses the, the common word for fear in Mark 4 and Mark 5 and Mark 6, Mark 11 and Mark 12. But the word he uses there in this passage, it's not the common word for fear. It's terrified. Now, what does that word mean? It literally means it's a riot happening. This is storm language that someone is stirring up the winds and the waves. Someone is stirring up a crowd into a rioting frenzy that, that someone is throwing them into confusion. See, I think what you have here is not just normal fear. This is unbridled fear bursting at the seams, so much so that Mark uses a different word. And then you look at their response. What does it say? It says, so they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. And this too is unique to Mark. Most of the times when you see crying out in Mark's gospel, it always has someone crying out to Jesus 
where they're recognizing his deity and power and might. Now, let me show you this. So much so that when you're in in Mark chapter 5, 7, the demons cry out. And what do they say to Jesus? Jesus, son of the most high, do not torment me. The unclean spirits cry out to Mark in Mark 3:11. You are the son of God. This father who has a son cries out to Jesus in Mark 9:24. He says, "Lord, I believe, help my unbelief." In Mark chapter 10, a blind man who cannot see, he cannot see Jesus, and yet the blind man cries out, "Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, have mercy on me." Did you notice when Mark uses the crying out in his gospel, people are crying out, but not just crying out to be crying out. They're crying out to Jesus. And they're seeing something about his power and his might and his character that they're laying hold to in their fear and in their need. Now, lay what we normally see happening in Mark's gospel. We're crying out back on this passage. Did you notice They don't cry out to Jesus. They're just crying out. Here's the irony. Where is Jesus in this passage? He's on a mountain crying out to his father. You see, when I told you Jesus is a better disciple than we'll ever be, I mean that. And here's why. In John's gospel, The people want to make Jesus their king. After he feeds the 5,000, they're like, this is our man, enthrone him, crown him right here today. And do you know what he does? He sends the people away. He sends the disciples away. And he goes on a mountain and he prays. Why? Because he's in a moment of tempting. It's tempting to want the applause of men. It's tempting to want to be crowned without the cross. And so what Jesus does in that moment is he sends people away and he himself goes on a mountain and he cries out to the father. And do you know what's happening in the passage? They ought to be crying out to Jesus. But beneath their fear. Because if you're like me, I'm like, man, fear, that that ain't nothing. That ain't like this sin, and it ain't like this, and it ain't like this. And I'm thinking, okay, let's look at the Bible. This type of unbridled fear, this riot of the soul, where they're coming unglued, where they're not crying out to God, where they're forgetting. Brother, he just calmed the storm that y'all were in a few chapters ago. He just raised a woman from the dead. He just healed a woman with an issue of blood. He just fed 15,000 people. Like, Like he just cast out legions of demons. So this is a fear that is unbridled. It's a fear that's not crying out to Jesus. It's a fear that is not remembering his goodness and his character and his power. And so beneath the unbridled fear, you know what's there? It's unbelief. I don't think you're good. And I don't think you're kind. And I don't think you will be with me right here in this season of life. And I don't think you are able to minister and save and rescue me. Therefore, it's up to us to just cry out. That's what's happening in the passage. You've been there before? 
I have. Where your fear won't let you sleep. And rather than take it to the Lord in prayer, you sit on it. And you don't believe he's able. That this fear about losing someone you love that it can paralyze you where you can't function and you're numb towards the Lord and the things of the Lord. And beneath that, what we're communicating to the Lord is you're not sufficient to be my everything. You will abandon me. You will forsake me. You know what it's like to be afraid of being single? That your friends are getting married and, and, and you're still single? And that fear of living life alone might move you to date someone you ought not be dating and it's being moved by fear because you don't believe that God will actually give you the grace to be joyfully and faithfully single, that he will actually come to you and minister to you in that place. And so we panic with fear and we actually think it's up to us to go find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And all along, Jesus wants to say, baby girl, I got you. You know what it's like to be afraid of losing your job and not knowing how to, how to provide for your family so much so that you stay with the job and you do things unethical and wrong just because you're afraid and what we're saying beneath the fear is you're not a faithful provider. You see, I don't know what you are afraid of. But I do know that when we find ourselves in those places in life where we're given over to unbridled fear, I would make the case if you could attach a spiritual line to it, you could travel that line back to a place in our hearts where I don't believe you're good and I don't believe you're powerful. And I don't believe you're able. And there, where that thread meets the crux of your soul, is unbelief. What's the solution, right? We've seen the sickness that we all suffer. We see this symptom of the sickness, this unbridled fear. But what's the solution? I think it's seeing Jesus. That the cure for our fear caused by the hardening of our heart, it's, it's not a what, but a who. And so for a moment, can we sort of suspend and, and do away with the, the storm that's brewing? Can we kind of put aside how the disciples are acting? And the only thing I want us to do for the next few minutes, look at how Jesus responds to their hardness of heart. He does not respond like I would. I'm like, bro, I done did all of this, man. I done raised somebody from the dead. I done cast out demons. I done fed all of y'all with nothing. I done, I mean, what? What, what? what else do I need to do? I'm done with y'all. Can I just get some new disciples who will get it? Look at, look at the people right here. I mean, look at the next section. As soon as Jesus lands to Gennesaret, did you notice what it says? And when they got out of the boat, the people over there immediately recognized him. And so you mean to tell me that strangers 
who just heard about Jesus, the moment he gets off the, bu- off the boat, they recognize who he is, and they in faith bring people, and yet the disciples who have been with him the whole time, who've watched everything, don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost. You see the irony of the passage? If I were Jesus on my worst day, I'm kicking y'all out, and I'm going to go with some people who really see it and who really get it, Right? And that's not how he treats his disciples. And that's not how he treats you. Did you notice what he does? He never takes his eyes off of them. This is a part of the passage that, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand it. On the one hand, look at the text. It says that he dismissed the crowd and he went up on a mountain to pray in verse 46. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And look at verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Come on, man. Like, how can you see them? It's like two in the morning, and you're on a mountain, and you sent them on a boat across the sea, and it's at night. So how, you know, I don't know, right? I don't know if this is literal. I don't know if he just felt, I don't know if he could hear them. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I do know that Jesus never took his eyes off of him. He's communing vertically with the Father. And his eyes are still moving horizontally towards his people. And that's powerful. And that means that though Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, That if you are a child of God, do you believe that his eyes are on you in your fear? You believe that? You believe it. Because that's what this says to me. That he's communing with the Father and he never forgets about his disciples. As a matter of fact, he doesn't just not take his eyes off of them he actually stops what he's doing to move towards them, which is, which is, I still don't get this either, right? Because Jesus can't be in two places at the same time. He's a, at this point on the, on, on, in his ministry, he is not glorified, right? So he has to be at one place at one time. And so Jesus is on the mountain praying, and then he sees his disciples and their fear and anxiety. And the text actually says he came to them. He says, okay, Dad, I guess it's time to stop praying. And it's time to go and move towards my people. They need me. And maybe he's praying in the Spirit as he walks toward them. But this is Jesus who leaves prayer with the Father to come and tend to weep needy disciples. And you know what he says? I will walk on water to get to you because I can. I will not let water or gravity or the darkness of night keep me from coming near you. And did you catch what else Jesus did? His intent, it seems, was to go past them, right? To walk around them. And I, I don't know where he was. I, I just don't know what he was trying to do, right? But I do know whatever he was trying to do, he did not do 
because they needed him. Now, you can make the case, and I think this is a compelling argument, that as Moses was about to lead God's people into the, into the uh, journey with him from the mountain, he comes to the Lord, Lord, I'm afraid. Can you show me your glory? And the Lord says, I will. I will pass by you, and you will see my rear. And Moses saw the back of the presence of the living God. You can make the case that the disciples, in their fear, they ought to be crying out to Jesus, Jesus, show us again, do it again, and they don't. And Jesus is about to pass by them, I'm going to show you my glory. And the, in their unbelief, they panic, and Jesus says, okay, another day. I'll get transfigured, and you will see it then, but for right now, you're not ready for that, what I'm going to do, but I'm going to stop what I intended to do and tend to you right now. That's the kind of Savior you and I have who is that attentive to us where he will actually take us at the pace that we need. And he speaks to them with tenderness. Did you notice what he says in verse 50? He says, take your heart. Let not the waves bother you. Why? Because it is I. Do not be afraid. And some say that you can translate that it is I, that Jesus is saying, take your heart. I am, and therefore you don't fear. Now, if that's what he's saying, he's saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who spread the sea for Moses and the people to go through. I'm the God who revealed himself, and I'm the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore, and I do not change. And so you, in your hour of need on this sea, it is I. I will attend to you. And therefore, because I am who I say I am, you need not fear the waves or the wind. I made them, and they listened to me. And did you notice he gets in the boat with them? He actually gets into the boat with them, and the text says, and the wind ceased. Now, here's my question, and I wish I could ask Mark this one question. Which wind are you talking about? You see, it's two storms happening on this sea. It's the storm outside of them. But remember the word that Mark used for their terror? There is a storm brewing in their own hearts that are leading them to not believe. And when Jesus gets in the boat with them, it says the wind ceased. Which wind? It's both of them. Because your Savior is in this with you. And did you catch that he brings them to the other side? They actually get to where they're going I think this is a paradigm, Redeemer. What's the one thing that keeps you up at night? What's the one thing that you're losing sleep over? What's the one thing that is just wearing you out? What if I told you that Jesus says that? 
I see it. And my eyes are ever on it. And what if he says to you, peace, because of who I am, you need not be afraid. And what if he says to you, I will walk on water. I will do whatever I need to do to get to you and be with you, that your hope and confidence might be with me, and you never need to worry about that. And what if he says, you will make it through? You will make it through this thing. You will make it to the other side because I, the one who started a work in you, the last I checked, he promised to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, are you afraid of death? He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Are you afraid of sickness? Fear not who can, him who can kill the body. I have your soul and you're safe and I will resurrect you. Are you afraid of being alone? He says, I will stick to you closer than a brother, closer than a friend. I will make my dwelling place in you. Jesus says, make a list of all of your greatest fears. And what you will see is they find their fulfillment in me. And because of who he is, he says to you, fear not. Now, on what grounds can Jesus say, fear not, I promise these things to you. Did you catch what Mark said? Mark actually said that Jesus was alone while they were out there. And I think what Mark is doing is setting us up for the next time Jesus will be alone. He will be alone on a cross bearing all of your sin, all of our hardness of heart, all of the ways that we disbelieve. And you know what the promise to you is? Because I have borne that alone and I have taken away the thing that you ought to be most afraid of and that is falling in the hands of an angry God because I have taken that guess what you never ever 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 have to worry about being alone ever ever period that's our desire is that we would be so enamored with the finished work of Jesus that it would break into our here and now and that we would say with our hearts, Lord, I'm afraid of this and I need you to move and to preach the gospel to my soul again that I will believe again and again and again and again until you bring me home. What's the way forward? When we get this, how does this change us? I'll start with an illustration, then I'll apply it. Tony Dungy is one of my favorite men, favorite coaches. His son committed suicide when he was 18. And he writes about how hard that was the most terrifying thing he's ever endured in his life. And right before a Super Bowl, he gave an address. And listen to what he says. Listen to this beautiful statement. He says, God knows how I feel. 2,000 years ago, he lost his only son, Jesus Christ, and it paved the way for me and you to have eternal life. That's the benefit I have. That's the benefit my son James has, 
And it's the benefit you can get today if you trust in Jesus as your substitute and Savior. I want you to know, listen to what he says, in the midst of the fear and the pain, I want you to know that there is a peace in your mind, even in the pain and the fear through God's spirit, when you know Jesus and you know you will be with him forever. Tony Dungy is not saying just because I know Jesus, my heart does not ache. He's actually saying because I know Jesus, he's giving me a peace in the midst of my suffering. And that is the way forward. I can guarantee you that your life will not be a bed of roses just because you follow Jesus. But what I can guarantee you is is if you're his, he will get in there with you and settle your heart and anchor your heart. And I would make the case that he would do this thing right here. When I graduated, I had to move to Ohio. And I had to come home and get all of my stuff. And me and my brother drove. And I had a U-Haul. And my brother had the car in front of us. And man, he was doing like 80, degree, 80 miles an hour. And I'm like in a U-Haul. And I got the, all the stuff. And I'm like pushing the gas. Like, come on, man. I can't keep up with him. And my speedometer says I can go 85. Why can't I go 85, right? And I'm, I call my name like that. I, this U-Haul ain't working right. It was the first time in my life I heard of a governor. It's when they put something on the U-Haul that will not let you go the speed limit you want to go and crash their truck and wreck and kill yourself, right? And so they put a governor on it, and it makes you go 65. Would you believe that Jesus, by the Spirit, can put a governor on your fear? He put a governor on it. I'm not saying if you won't be afraid, but I am saying he's, he will not let you get reckless. He will keep you until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's my prayer for us, Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and I do pray by your spirit that you would uh, move I know that there are many of us in here who are terrified at many things. And Father, I pray that the gospel and the good news of Jesus would break into our fear and put a governor on it. I pray this for Christ's name. Amen.